It's interesting, you know, having been gone, I was just noticing the videos. Um, you know, we usually got so much stuff going on around here. And uh, the last month and a half, I mean, we had John Bevere, we've had Easter, we had 3,400 people in Easter, biggest Easter we've ever had. Uh, God is just doing really wonderful things. The Lord is just blessing the church. Uh, last week, we have, you know, we do a Thursday night uh, prayer and healing meeting in this room. And I think there were 125 people that came to that meeting. It's, it's the largest that that's ever been. It started out with just a, a handful of people and a prayer team, and it's just growing and growing. And we're just thanking the Lord for the good things that he's doing in people's lives. Um, it's been really good for me. We've, we've kind of handed off leadership to my son as the main pastor. I, I'm, still, uh, I'm still here um, and, and, and intend to be. I'm still paid. I'm still everything except for... I don't have to deal with the headaches. They had church council meeting this morning, and I got to be a My Discipleship group. They're all over there worrying about money and this and that and the other thing. And I mean, with guys that I love learning about the Lord. And, and uh, it's like I, I get to do the fun stuff now, and, and Carl gets to wear the hat. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really good. But I was on a trip. And you might open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to go through and, and uh, talk about temptation tonight. But I just came back. I got back last night at 7 o'clock uh, at the airport or I guess closer to 8. Uh, the flight left very late in Los Angeles. But I, I, I was last Sunday, I was in Ukraine. And um, uh, I, I've been involved with a the church there for a couple of years. They're actually part of our denomination uh, about to be. There, there were an independent church that's now joining our denomination uh, through the efforts of one of our missionaries in Eastern Europe. And and um, you mind if I take a little time and talk about this? Uh, let, let me talk about the church first and then talk about the people. I, I um, A church is a church of about 2,000 members, although probably not that many show up on a Sunday. Uh, last week, the attendance was a little weak. Benny Hinn was in town. And they also had, and so a lot of people went to that. And uh, in Eastern Europe, they really, really, really are focusing on the miraculous uh, because they've been so pounded down. Their, their lives were so bad for so long. They see the gospel, and, and they really get the parts about God answering prayer and, and God doing miracle things. And so guys that we would look at a little bit askance because we see their TV personality and all that, all, all they hear is, this guy's talking about faith, and I need some. I mean, my life is miserable. Uh, there's a lot of corruption in the government. Uh, there was corruption, obviously, under the Soviets. Uh, they had the Orange Revolution. Remember that? And the president, they, they poisoned him. The, looked like the Russians did. And, and, but then he turned out to be a weak leader, and he allowed the, the, the Soviet leaders back into con control. And so now they're businessmen. And so there's, there, there's bribery going on everywhere. It's, it's, a, it's pretty tough. Uh, church is a big church. It's a strong church. They've started um, uh, over 40 churches. I, I met a couple of church planters that are getting ready to go out right now. Uh, that part, that's why I go, uh, to, to, to just fan their fire. When I went there two years ago, I talked to them a lot about mini church. Uh, and I got them talking to each other about the book of Acts and, and, and what you see in the book of Acts and, and the small groupness of Christianity and the, the, the up-close fellowship of Christianity. And so they asked me to come back. They said, last time you taught us what to do, we need you to teach us how to do it. 
And so they have small, they don't call them mini churches, but they have mini churches. But per, per, percentage-wise with their attendance, they have way fewer than we do. And they realize that that's the key to getting the ball rolling in terms of planting churches. You start raising up leaders as pastors in homes. And, and this is the congregation that will flat out tell you we've been burned by the seminary experience. We've, we sent guys away to seminary, and then they came back. They were afraid to be a pastor because it was made into something so complicated. And we've, we've raised up guys in our own church, and they're succeeding. And these guys are planting churches in other countries, and, and it's going very well. And, and so we want to do more of that. But we know the heart of this thing is mini church. Would you come teach us that? So that's where I went. But um, last weekend, was, it was weird. The, the seminar was chock full of people. Uh, the attendance of the church was down a little bit. They have, a, they have Memorial Day on a Sunday in their country, and they all go to the, to the cemetery, and they picnic. And we were driving over to the pastor's house after church. I saw hundreds of people, hundreds of people. I couldn't believe it. To this very tiny seminary, cemetery. <laughs> a Freudian slip. <laughs> Anyhow, they, they, it, just, it was amazing, but it was just uh, really good. But one day I was with the pastor, and this, this congregation has got a lot of Jewish people in it. Uh, a lot of Jewish people in Ukraine. Uh, the pastor's Jewish. Uh, we got to talking, and his father is still alive, but his grandparents were killed by the, by the Nazis when the Nazis overran Ukraine. And his father, as, a, as a, like an eight-year-old boy, was taken off to Buchenwald and somehow survived World War II as a slave to the Nazis. And then, of course, the whole Soviet thing took over. And we were in a room. There were just there was myself and Carl, and the pastor. And, a, and a, he's he speaks quite good English, but there was a translator to make sure everything's really good. And there was another staff member there. Every one of them had had experiences during the Soviet Soviet era of uh, family or neighbors that just vanished in the night, never to be heard of again. And uh, it, it, it brought that part of the ugly history of the 20th century uh, so home. I, I mean, to you know, be sitting here uh, looking at somebody whose dad uh, has got tattooed numbers on his arms from, from, from Buchenwald, from the Nazi uh, camps, and, and, and whose grandparents were murdered by the Nazis. And, and, and as we got to talking, we, we found out that virtually everybody in their church, church of about 2,000 people, has relatives that were murdered by the Nazis. And uh, uh, virtually everybody has family or friends or neighbors that disappeared during the Soviet era. I, I, I mean, to, to just think about that and that hanging over your head, uh, it, it's just amazing that these people have in the Lord, because there's, there, there, there still is a sort of a spirit of oppression on the countries. You can feel... And I believe it's demonic. You can feel the darkness. But these people in the Lord have this incredible hope. And, uh, and, 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 and they don't act like what I just told you. They don't act like people who have all lost family members to an evil regime. They don't act like that at all. They don't, they don't seem to carry any of that. Somehow the gospel has had enough power to liberate them from that. And there's just, there's just freedom and joy that is just an amazing thing and so I just want to say thank you guys for always tolerating me going on these trips and doing what I do um, I, I, I'm very selective about where I go I want to go where 
it'll, it'll do the most good. Uh, maybe, fortunately or unfortunately, that means I'm going to probably end up going two years from now back to Eastern Europe a couple of times because uh, there's monstrous opportunity there and, uh, and it, it, it's, just, it's, it's almost impossible for them to buy land. They meet in a college auditorium, um, but it's very easy for them to plant churches. And so uh, we're just, we want to we want to reap the harvest while the harvest fields are, are, are ready to go, and we're just looking for good stuff to happen. And then on the way home, I, I took Carl on the trip. Um, I normally wouldn't do this, but I took him on the trip because I thought that uh, he would connect with the people in Ukraine. And um, I'm not sure if he did or didn't. They invited him to come back and speak, uh, but I'm not sure. We, we're, we're not sure. Were they being polite or, or, you know, I mean, I was still the guy they wanted to hear from because I've been around so long and stuff. But, um, but on the way, I, I got to show him London, uh, something that I wish would have happened to me in my 40s or my 30s. You know, I was of the generation uh, where everybody just a little older than me, when they graduated from high school, they went to Europe because Europe was rebuilding after World War II and it was poor and it was cheap so you could go hitchhike around Europe. Well, I came up during the Vietnam War and if you didn't carry a full load in college, uh, you were going to Southeast Asia. And so, I, and I had to pay for my own schooling, and it was a private college, so I had to work full time to go to college. And so I never got to do that, but um, when I did finally, about 10 years ago, see kids to go to Europe and realize the heritage that's been handed down to us uh, from Christian people, I, I stood in front, I put it on my Facebook page. Uh, I, uh, if, you, if you want to look for me on Facebook, my name is Ralph Moore Hawaii, and you got to search that way. Some guy owns my name on the internet, so uh, I'm, I'm Ralph Moore Hawaii. But anyway, I, I posted a picture standing in front of a little plaque about this big on a wall it's, that was on Aldergate Street in London, and this is the place, the address. There's no building there. There's a little park there now where John Wesley accepted the Lord. John Wesley had gone to seminary, was a, was a pastor and a missionary. He's a missionary to this place called Georgia in the United States, uh, in the colonies, actually, and um, was not a believer in Jesus Christ. He did it as a profession. And then he got dragged to some meetings, because I read up on this while I was there. He got dragged to some meetings by some friends, and he had a, he had a transformational experience. He he sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, something he didn't even believe in, and it changed his life. And by, the 19, by 1950, Methodism, the Methodist Church, was about the largest spiritual organization in England or the United States. They've since sort of turned their back on the Bible as the inspired word of God, and they've gone downhill since then. But uh, John Wesley uh, was really strong in, in, in small groups, what they called meetings. And uh, a young guy named Ralph Moore in about 1974 uh, read the life of John Wesley. And so what we're doing that we call mini church comes to us via, you know, when you start to get that kind of a perspective on the world, it, it just changes everything. So I really thought that Carl uh, would benefit, and he did. He really loved it. Uh, we went to uh, the war rooms where Winston Churchill ran the war on the English side of the war. And, and boy, I mean, Carl was just sucking it up. And it was really, really a good time. And, and just good father-son time. So anyway, it's okay if I take all that time to talk about all this stuff. So, good. 
Anyway, we're going to talk tonight in, um, about temptation, and I would imagine that this sermon would have some application to all of us. Um, I would imagine that for some, though, it would have a very, very strong application, and, um, and you'll know who you are as it, as it unfolds, as, as it just touches your life. Uh, it's a long, long passage of Scripture, so I'm not going to do as much preaching as I am just reading the scripture and, and, and letting the, the Bible do the talking. But it's talking about temptation, and it starts out by holding up the unbelief that went on in the Old Testament under Moses as sin. Um, people who chose, see, any time that I choose to do other than what God is asking of me, I'm in sin. Now, usually we're, we hear the word sin, and what we, what we attach to it are pornography or drugs or alcohol abuse or spouse abuse or anger or, or things like that. Those are sins. But the root of sin is any time that I choose to live my, way, my life my own way instead of God's way. In fact, the, the real, real down-to-earth basic thing is Isaiah 53, 6. It says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've each one turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid, it's a prophecy about Jesus, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, which is another word for sin, of us all. So Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. What is my sin? Going my own way, doing my own thing. You know, what was the, the, what was the byword of the 1970s, the, the, the hippie revolution? Do your own thing, man. That's not my bag. That's not my trip. You know, I, I'll do my thing. So we, we, when, when we find ourselves going in a direction other than where God's trying to lead us, whatever that direction is, whether it's something that society overtly labels as sin or it's something like we see here in, in the Old Testament where uh, people just complained about God because they didn't really believe that he was going to take them into the promised land and they refused to engage him. That's sin. That's sin. So it, 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 as, as, as you look at this, he, he holds these people up as an example. In ver, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And then he says an amazing thing. He says, that rock was Christ. Now, he's just described four miracles that you could read in the book of Exodus and Numbers in the Old Testament. The first is that as the Israelis left Egypt. They, they had gone down there when there was a famine. There was a family of 72 people, the Bible tells us. And they prospered in Egypt, but then they prospered so much that another pharaoh came along and wanted to get rid of them. Actually, he didn't want to get rid of them. He turned them into slaves. And then God raised up Moses to lead them out of slavery and take them to Canaan, the land where they had come from. And so on, on the way out, there were these plagues that happened that kind of broke Egypt's will and the Pharaoh's will to where he was willing to let the people go. And then they go, and they come up across the Red Sea. Now, there's a lot of debate about the Red Sea. There's something now called the Red Sea 
there's another thing that would really have been in their path that people call the Sea of Reeds today. Uh, but it's a, it's a big body of water. And they believe that that's where they were. And I've actually watched like History Channel things that suggest that, that how this happened, and God can do it any way he wants, right? But how this happened was that there was an earthquake all the way in Greece that caused this thing to happen and the ground to do whatever it did and push up and, and, the, and the water was pushed back. And they literally said, and these aren't believing people, they literally said that it would have been as a wall of water got pushed back. A wall of water. And that's what the Bible describes. It doesn't describe, oh, the, the sea was there and then it receded and then they went through on dry, and, and then the, the, the water rose again. That's not what the Bible says, and that's not what the scientists say, is that, 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 that there would have been this tumultuous thing that caused the water to heap up on both sides. And uh, so that, that was miracle number one. The second miracle was that there was a cloud, the Bible says, that, that led them, and they would follow the cloud. If the cloud stayed, then they stayed camped. If the cloud moved, then they followed the cloud, and it was a pillar of cloud, unlike any cloud you and I have ever seen. It was a pillar of cloud, and the Bible says that it was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And God somehow made his presence known to these people, and they followed. They, they saw tangible miracles. So they watched the Egyptian army drown when the sea came back together. So that's a big one. And, and God saved their nut at that point. And then they, watched, they had this cloud that followed them. And then it says that they all ate spiritual food. They, they had come to the place where God provided Something the Bible says it looked like coriander seed that was sweet to the taste that was on the ground every morning, and that for 40 years this this food occurred until they moved into the land of Canaan and then it stopped happening to them. They had that miracle. There were the two times that Moses struck a rock and in 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 a in a time when they had no water and water came gushing forth from the rock. And you can say whatever you want to say about that to me. You know, I, I'm one of these people that. Um, uh, you can tell me that, oh, well, there was already water. There was a spring there, and Moses just happened to accidentally hit the spot that, 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 that popped the water loose. Well, that's fine. I, I, you know, The miracle then was that God told Moses where to hit the rock. Am I making sense? Uh, you, know, you can say that the parting of the Red Sea was caused by an earthquake in Greece, and, uh, and what I watched on TV did not say this. It, it, it was actually affirming the Bible. But you can say, well, it was just an earthquake in Greece. It's a coincidence that they walked through the Red Sea. That's no miracle. Well, then I would say the timing of them standing at the shore of the Red Sea when the earthquake happened, you know, do you, do you believe that God can cause earthquakes? Uh, I, I mean, God's God. So they had experienced these things, and, 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 it, and, it, and it says this kind of unusual thing. It says that, well, let me read the whole thing again. It says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by the cloud that moved ahead of them. All of them walked through the sea on dry ground. And the cloud, in the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. Now, they weren't dunked. They weren't sprinkled. What he's saying is the experience that they had baptized them into something in the presence of the Lord. And, and as you encounter God in your life, and you've got those things that you can't quite explain that happened to you, that brought you closer to God, 
there's a sort of a baptism that takes place. And, and he's describing it that way. They, there was no formal baptism in the Old Testament at that time. And so he's saying they were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, the manna that you read about in the book of Exodus. You got to go home and read the book of Exodus. It's pretty exciting. It says, all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And then it says this curious thing. That rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. In other words, all the miracles these people experienced involved the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was leading them. Uh, The Lord Jesus was there spiritually. He did miracles for them. That rock was Christ. Verse 5 says, Yet God was not pleased with most of them. And you might want to underline that word, most of them, because it certainly wasn't all of them. And it says, Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking. They indulged in pagan revelry, and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Again, in the Old Testament, there's a story of these people, two different stories of people uh, once Moses is on the mountain talking to God for too long and the people get tired of it and, they, and, they, and they, they create an idol and they fall down and worship the idol and they go to, to, to a sexual orgy and a whole bunch of people died as a result. The Bible says God judged them and caused a pestilence to come upon them. There's another time when they had an enemy who wanted to curse them and he got some weird prophet guy named Balaam to come around and, and kept saying, curse the people. And Balaam, every time he would get ready to curse the people, God would put, pray, put, put blessings in his mouth, and he'd end up blessing the people. And finally, the guy gets frustrated. I gave you all this money, and all you do is blessing these people. And the guy goes, well, let me tell you a little secret. If you can engage them in immorality, then God will have to discipline them, and, uh, and, and you get what you want. And so the, they sent a bunch of women into the camps of the Israelis to seduce them, and Terrible things happened as a result. So that's what this is talking about, them, them celebrating in pagan revelry in verse 8, engaging in sexual immorality and it costing them. Verse 9, More, nor must we put Christ to the test as some of them did and died from snake bites and don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. In other words, Satan had a lot of little tools that he used on these people. And he got them to, to get bitter toward God. That's where it talks about the snake bite thing. He got them to just disbelieve. You know, they sent they, they, they come to the, the, the very gates of Canaan, the, the land that they were supposed to take. It was going to be a big miracle. And they've seen all these miracles that God did. <clears throat> so they send 12 spies. There were 12 tribes in the, in the family of Israel. They send 12 tribes. There's about 600,000 of them. And they send these, these 12 spies into the land. They come back and they say it's a beautiful land. It's, the, the, it's fruitful. It's just a land flowing with milk and honey. However, there's big people there. And we look like ants compared to them. They're going to swallow us up. The land will swallow us up. And so the people that day decided all but two of those spies, 10 of the spies came back and said, uh, what the Bible later on calls an evil report. They said, we're not going where God wants us to go because we don't really believe he'll get us there. Two of them said, no, we can do it. With God on our side, we can do anything. The people voted to go with the 10 
not with the two. And so God said to them through Moses that you're not going to ever see the land. And I'm not going to kill you. You're just going to die a natural death. So nobody's going in for 40 years. Your children will take the land that you refuse to take. And so that's what happened. And, 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 and so sin here as we look at it is in light of having seen God do stuff in our life that we may not quite be able to explain. You either go out and do the rampant stuff, the sexual immorality or whatever, drugs or whatever is out there, or you do the kind of stuff that just simply says, well, that's where God's leading, but that's not where I'm going. So you can sin by doing nothing. Does that make sense? You know, the, the other week we had that uh, um, compassion weekend. And I felt like the Lord told me that I was supposed to uh, help some kid get through school. And, uh, and so I went and talked to the people about that. And, and I, I really feel that that was the Lord. Well, the guys from Compassion never got back to me. So now I got some follow-up to do. Because if I don't do the follow-up, I will be sinning. Because I'm sure that God told me that I was supposed to get involved. Am I making sense? So I can just camp out and just go, I'm not going where God's going. And that's a bad thing. And so it's telling us that these people were a bad example. However, it says in verse 13, the temptations in your life... <clears throat> are no different than what others experience. You're, you're not any different than anybody else. And what you're going through, uh, other people have gone through. And it says, God is faithful. And underline that word in your Bible, faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out of it so that you can endure. God's faithful. You don't have to capitulate to the devil. You can go where God's trying to take you. And that if, there's, if there's temptation in your life, if you look to the Lord, and this is the key, look to the Lord, then he's going to make a way for you to escape the temptation, for you to get out of it. The Bible says an interesting thing in another scripture, and you might want to write this in the margin of your Bible so you could look at it later. I'm going to read it to you. It's in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, and it says about Jesus... So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, and then catch this part, for he faced all the same, same testings we do, yet he did not sin. You see, we constantly talk about Jesus dying on the cross to cover our guilt. I sinned. He didn't. He's God's son. He was punished so God could look at me and say, somebody paid your traffic ticket here. But there's this other part about Jesus that we don't talk about as much, and that is that he is like a high priest in heaven. He's somebody we can pray to. The Bible says he's somebody who will go to God the Father on your behalf. And it, and it says this, he understands our weaknesses because he was tempted and tested in every way like we are. Remember when they had the uh, movie, The Da Vinci Code? And there was all that hoopla. And, and uh, I actually went in, in, and I was in Europe and I went to some of those churches that were supposed to, remember the rose line and, uh, you know, all the faldy roll and stuff like that. <clears throat> those, those churches actually, 
One of them is a Catholic church. It's got a great big plaque that says, what that book said about this church ain't true. <laughs> now, it says it about this long, but that's what it said. And um, he, 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 uh, I, I, I visited the Church of the Knights Templar in London. Uh, 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 he, took, he took things from this part of history and this part of history, and he, and he mixed them all up. He made a great story. He's a great storyteller. I actually read his books. I like them. But it, the, the people thought the Da Vinci Code was history, and it was nonsense. It, it was just, you know, crazy. But in the Da Vinci Code, uh, he, he said that uh, Mary Magdalene and Jesus got married and had kids <clears throat> and that the whole deal, you know, traced down the lineage all this. Just that that the that the um, I lost my brain here, I'm jet lagged. <laughs> the chalice, what's the word for it? The the holy grail that everybody always thought was the cup that Jesus took communion from. Now, you know what? I, I, I've seen enough archaeology, I've been to places the cup that Jesus took communion from was probably made of wood. There's no chance in the world that it was made of gold and bejeweled like the people thought in, in the 13th century. There's no chance at all. Pe people ate of wooden cups. And, and Jesus was basically in poverty. And he would never have had this jeweled monster. It, it's just not going to be. But the Da Vinci Code said that the Holy Grail was actually the womb of Mary Magdalene that bore their children. It's like, give me a break. But, but, here's what I believe. If Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, it doesn't say tempted, it said tested. That would include tempted, but, it, but also your te face is tested when you go through hard times, Right? He had to have had a broken heart over a woman. And I think Mary Magdalene's the best candidate when you read about her. If she's the one who came and poured the, the, the expensive perfume over his feet just before he died, she must, have had, she must have loved him. And if the Bible's right when it says Jesus was tempted and tested in every way that we are, I, he loved somebody and had to give him up because he had a mission to do. He had to go to the cross. Jesus had to have had a broken heart over a woman or he wouldn't be what the Bible just said he was, tested in every way that you and I are tested. He had to have gone through that heartache that every human goes through time after time in their life. You know, when you're a teenager, it's, a, it's another one every three weeks, right? <laughs> oh! You know, it, it, it just, it just, it's got to be true. That it, it doesn't have to be Mary Magdalene. I can't prove that. But it has to be true that there was somebody. I mean, can, can I just get right down and say that Jesus had the hots for somebody? <laughs> and he had to say no to that because he was called to a higher calling. And so that when you and I have got something that's precious to us and God's saying, no, we're going over here, that we have a high priest in heaven who knows what it feels like in our heart to let go of something that we don't really want to let go of and that we want to hang on to and, 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 and that if we hang on to it, it will be sin. And we've got to release and we've got to let go. We've got to let God do his thing. Is this good? Well, then he kind of gets practical. You know, Paul always does this. If you, if you read the epistles of Paul, 
uh, read it with this in mind. He'll do it here in, um, in a chapter, but usually he does it in a whole book. Like if you read the book of Ephesians, the first, it's six chapters long, basically. And you know the chapters were not in the Bible when the Bible was written? The book of Ephesians was a letter to the church at Ephesus. Somebody, a couple hundred years later, put chapters and verses in there to make it easy for us to say, open your Bible up to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, you know, that kind of thing. So, but roughly three chapters of Ephesians is theology. This is knowledge about God. And the last three chapters are practical theology. Here's how to live your life because you know this stuff about God. And if you go to Philippians, it's the same. You go to Colossians, it's the same. Everywhere Paul wrote, he always lays out his case for the man and his relationship with God and what Jesus did for us on the cross. Then he goes, here's how you live. And so he, he does it right here in this chapter. He's, he's made this case, and then, and then he, he just gets practical. And he gives, and I got four little points here of practical, practical advice. First is verse 14. He says, so my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. In other words, stay clear of what tempts you. When I was a young pastor, I had a guy came to me, and he um, took a bus home from work every night. And he, he, he came, and, and he was upset because on his way home from work, he would always stop at this store when he was walking after he got off the bus, and he'd buy a soda. And in the store, very prominently displayed right next to where you leave the store, is a whole bunch of pornographic literature, magazines. And he was a sucker for the magazines. And he wanted to get free from pornography. And in all of my wisdom, I said, um, why don't you buy a Coke at another store? Pretty simple. I mean, if you've got to go there and look at that stuff in order to buy a Coke, don't go there anymore. Go down the street. It's pretty easy. I have a friend in this church who's really involved. We have a, a, a ministry for people who are struggling with, uh, with pornography in their lives. And he runs the ministry. He's a faithful, godly man who won't have a television in his house and won't take his laptop home from work because he has a propensity toward pornography, and until he can whip that sucker, and I believe he will, I don't think he's going to have to live this way all his life. Until he beats that thing, he's not going to take the, the laptop home because the laptop is a source of temptation. What's it say here? My dear friends, flee. Flee. If you're caught up in the, the for them, it was worship of idols. Now, we look at worship of idols as some pagan, nonsensical thing. But you've got to put yourself... I mean, I just told you my story about being in Ukraine, and these people have a history. Their history is fear, fear of the government, because the governments that they've had to deal with, the Nazis and the Soviets, were so evil that their, their, that their, their life is the backdrop for everything that goes on in society is this fear. And a fear that the fear will come back. Am I making sense when I say that? So if you're a person that came from a culture that was highly, highly superstitious. See, we come from a culture that's highly secularized. Our, 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 our problems are entirely different than their problems were. Our, our problems are that people around us tend to not believe in anything. Although they say actually 97% of Americans 
say they strongly believe in heaven. I read that this week in a Time magazine, 97%. 1% of Americans strongly say they are atheists. 99% of Americans say they believe in something out there. Now, they may not believe in Jesus, but they believe in something out there. But, but, but our societal backdrop is secular. Their societal backdrop was pagan idols. And so everybody that's a Christian has got to be, it's kind of like this. I'm out here, pretend that rug is, Christ, is, is faith in Jesus Christ. I'm out here with all these idols. And I've been to Corinth, where this was written to. And I've seen all these little statues and whatever. And I was in a British museum this week, and they'd got all a whole bunch of junk from Corinth. And there's all this weird pagan idol, idols, little ones that people had in their houses, big monster things. There's, there's all this stuff. But it's superstition. You believe that thing is going to help you make money. You believe that thing is going to get rid of the tumor in your body. You believe that thing is going to get rid of the neighbor that's put the evil eye on you and has put some sort of a curse on you. You actually believe this stuff. You live in this stuff. Now you come over here and you say, now I'm believing in Jesus. And Paul says when the temptation is there to slip back and go, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in the idol too. It doesn't make much sense to us, but it would have made huge sense to them to, to, to mix up, I have faith in Christ, but I, I'm not going to let go of this thing because this thing, you know, I don't know about this. And, and so he's saying, flee from it, flee from it, get rid of it. Go down to verse 15. Don't, don't play both sides of the fence. You've got to be on one team or the other. He says, you are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I'm saying is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, we take communion, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? You know, I am not a person who believes in transubstantiation. You know what that word means? That, uh, that some Christians believe that when they drink the little cup of juice or wine or whatever it is at communion, that it actually becomes physically blood when it goes in their mouth. I don't believe that at all. I believe that it's grape juice that's going down, but it represents the blood of Christ. And so I'm engaging in the Spirit in what Jesus did for me on that cross. It says, you're reasonable people. Decide for yourselves is what I'm saying is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? When we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? The Scripture in four different places says, Jesus' body was broken for us. In other words, it was like, paid your fine, paid your traffic ticket. It was broken for us so that we might have healing. Somehow it breaks the curse of sin that causes destruction to human bodies and, 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 and people are prayed for and things that you can't explain happen and there's healings that take place. And there's healings that, by the way, don't take place. You know, I, I, there, there are people who make a, 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 a doctrine out of that if you're not healed when somebody prays for you, then there must be sin in your life. Well, I think that's nonsense. God, for some reason, does things, and for some reason, he doesn't do things. And I'll, I'm not big enough to figure him out. But it says here, when we break the bread, aren't we sharing the body of Christ? Though we are many, we all eat from the one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. In other words, there's a unity in us. Think about the people of Israel. He's talking about way in the past. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? What I'm saying is, what, I'm trying, what am I trying to say? 
I am saying that food offered to idols has some significance. Excuse me, I'm still jet-lagged. I'm, I'm, I'm twisting words. I'm dyslexic. What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these are sacrifices. These sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. In other words, Paul believes in the spiritual reality of fallen angels, because that's what demons are. The Bible talks about one-third of the angels of heaven rebelled against God, and they're out to do you wrong, and the Bible calls them demons. And so they're not gods competing with God for his throne. They're, the, the word angelos or angel means messengers. They're messengers from Satan sent to mess you up and to hurt your life. And he says... What I'm saying is that when people offer sacrifice to idols, they're offering a sacrifice to a demon, and you don't want to be involved with that. And he says in, in the end of verse 20, I don't want you to participate with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. In other words, I can't stand over here on the line and go, I'm worshiping Jesus on Sunday, but I'm going to be on Saturday at the, at the feast in, in front of this idol. I, you, you can't do these two things because you're going to be ripped to shreds spiritually. You can't do it. You can't do it. You're going to fall. And so he's warning them against that kind of thing. Um, it says, you can't eat the Lord's table and the table of demons too. What? Do we want to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think that we are stronger than he is? Uh, the Message Bible, which is, is not real accurate, but it's real modern English, real kind of fun to read. I read it for my devotions in the morning. It, in verse 21, it puts it this way. It says, you can't have it both ways, banqueting with the master one day and slumming with the demons the next. Besides, the master won't put up with it. He wants us all or nothing. Do you think you can get off with anything else? You can't be living for Jesus one day and slumming with the devil the next. Uh, you know, God wants you 100%. Now, this takes me back to where I started. Sin is where I say, I ain't going there with you. I'm doing my own thing. Now, you can pretty much count on it. Your pastor never is going to worship an idol. Isn't that wonderful? Give you a lot of encouragement. Bless you. But there are times that God's going to ask me to do some things and I'm going to go, I don't want to go there. I do not want to go there. And, and, and that's temptation. That's temptation. And, and you've got to deal with it. You can't be having it both ways. You've got to do it the Lord's way 100%. And that doesn't mean you've got to run around in fear and, 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 and worry, am I doing everything, little thing right? God will show you clearly what he wants you to do. I had a time that I was asked, you know, I do all this traveling, and um, I'm, I am a little freaked out. No, I, I realized that tonight talking to somebody in the back, normally on a trip home from another country, I, somewhere along the way I get about six hours of sleep or eight hours of sleep. My doctor gives me some medicine to knock me down. And I came home from London yesterday. I was up for... I mean, door to door was like 26 or 27 hours. I was up for longer than that. 
and I never slept except for just a little bit on the plane back from LA. Normally, I dope myself out and get about eight hours, so I'm a little, you know. But, and I, and I don't especially like you know, all this travel. You gotta know that. I, I, I'm not out to see the world. I, I, it's not a tourism thing for me. It's, I, I, I know very well what hotel rooms and freeways and the inside of meeting halls look like all around the world. Um, but I go because I feel like the Lord has put me on. He, he's given me something, and, he, and if he gives you something, it says if you've given something, then it's going to be required of you that you give it away. And so I go to give it away. And I don't charge. I just go. And there's places that I don't want to go. I, I got called to go to India a few years ago, and, and, um, and, and, and thank God I got sick. I was praying and praying and praying. I didn't want to go. I got really, really sick, and I never had to go. Now, the, the sickness I got, I, would, I, I poisoned myself. I put some poison in some paint, and I wrecked my body up for a couple of years. The, the doctor said, I, 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 he actually said he almost killed me because he didn't catch it. I poisoned my liver really bad, so I was pretty messed up. I thank God I didn't have to go to India. <laughs> but, but... During that time, it was like, I really don't want to go. And, and, and it, it, all, all, everything was pointing toward going to India. I actually believe it was a blessing from the Lord that I got sick. I mean, it was just, I didn't want to go to India. But you know what? When you, when you have those moments in your life and God's telling you, pretty darn sure God's telling you to do something, and you're going, I just don't want to do that, well, then you ought to do it. I mean, that's really what it's saying, plain and simple. Just do what the Lord says. Am I getting anywhere? I got up here and told you guys that I was going to not preach much, and I've already overran the clock, and that's what happens when you get jet lagged. Verse, thir- verse 23, you be concerned about how your actions will affect others. We talked about this in an earlier chapter in Corinthians. It says, you say, I am allowed to do anything. He says, but not everything is good for you. The King James, old Shakespearean, Translation of the Bible says, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient, or not all things are expedient. In other words, yeah, you got grace. God, God, God says it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll cover you, but not everything works out well for you, and so you need to be careful of your actions. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, everything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of other people. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. Now, here's where he gets into the issue we talked about four weeks ago, about eating meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. And he basically said, the idol really isn't anything, and the meat offered to the idol isn't really anything, but if it bums somebody else out because they think that you're worshiping the idol by eating the meat, then basically he's going to say, don't eat the meat because you don't want to bum somebody out. Because it's not only bum them out, what he says in the earlier translation, earlier chapter is that they might start eating the meat too, and it really goes against their conscience. So what's happening is I'm eating the meat that's sacrificed to an idol, <clears throat> and I've dragged my friend back into idolatry. I didn't do idolatry. I didn't worship the idol. I just ate the hamburger. But the other guy, for him to eat the hamburger, he engaged the idol, 
And so he got involved with a demon because of me. And he's saying, don't do that. So it says, you, verse 25, you may eat any meat that's sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything is in it. It's, so it doesn't matter. Eat the meat. It all comes from God. If someone who isn't a believer asks you to your home to the asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. <clears throat> Eat whatever is offered to you without raising any questions of conscience. Don't say, Oh, was this meat offered to an idol? Just eat. Verse 28. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. Then don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other one. So why should my freedom be limited by what, what someone else thinks? Well, I can thank God for the food and enjoy it. Why should I be condemned for eating it? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's why you limit your behavior. You know, I, I, I like a glass of wine. But if I'm out with somebody who struggles with alcohol, I'm not going to order wine with dinner. I, I, you know, the Bible doesn't say don't drink. It says don't get drunk. But wine is the easiest one for us to get because it's the one that's closest to us in our society. If somebody has a problem with alcohol and I'm with them, I'm not going to do that. I, we had a guy that was actually working for our church. We found out that he was uh, actually goading people who didn't want to drink into drinking. Well, he doesn't work for the church anymore. He's gone. You, 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 I mean, you just don't do these things. And so you, you basically live a godly life. And then he says at the very end of it, and we'll quit with this, I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. So how do you deal with temptation? You stay away from the stuff that tempts you. When there's gray areas, you make wise decisions. You stay alert to the fact that other people's salvation is resting on the way that you live your life. I could talk for hours about this. Already I'm trying, it looks like. Um, but think of how many churches, I mean, whole other issues. I mean, we're talking about idol worship, we're talking about demons, we're talking about rampant disobedience to the Lord, sexual orgies, all kinds of things. We're talking about stuff as simple as just not doing what God calls you to do. And I mean, it, when I say God calls you to do, I'm talking about stuff like we moved into a neighborhood and a Christian neighbor walked up and knocked on our door and said, here's some chocolate chip cookies. Welcome to the neighborhood. And I think God told her to do it. And we became great friends. And my wife and she became great friends. And later on, her husband divorced her for another woman. She went through some really hard times. And this all happened like 35 years ago. And we got a Christmas card from her and her family this year. But it didn't start with us. It started with her. It started with her. And, then, and, and, and since then, there's been numerous times. And there's been times that it hasn't happened. But there's been times that it has happened. That my wife will, will go, I think the Lord wants me to go over and do the, the Paula Riley thing. You know? Make the cookies. And then there's times that she doesn't say that. I have a next-door neighbor. I have two next-door neighbors. I just moved to a new place. I have one next-door neighbor I feel I'm supposed to be friends with. I have another next-door neighbor I think I'm supposed to become really friends with. And the one guy is my age, 
and, 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 and we got a lot in common, although I don't know that he walks with the Lord. I, I don't feel that he's my assignment. The other guy is about half my age. He's into motorcycles. They, they're into Pauhana real heavy. They, 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 they got <laughs> friends over all the time. And I'm trying to get invited over for a beer. Because I believe that I'm supposed to get into that person's life. And, and for some reason, the guy really likes me and his wife really likes my wife. And we're, you know, old futzes. <laughs> it really comes back down to doing what the Lord wants you to do and not doing something different. Am I making sense? Examining our heart and going, do I really have love in my heart? You know, how many people have I met in my life? Probably a thousand who came to our church because they found love. And, and, and the reason they came to our church is because they had been in another church and they'd been badly burned by hypocritical, self-righteous, rulesy Christians. Those Christians are living in sin. Just as much as they're worshiping idols in front of other people, they're living in sin by, by putting, making idols out of their rules. We have a, a, a lady that's coming to our Alpha right now. She's at the table that my wife leads. And she, she won't say what it is. All she says is that she came here because she's not sure she believes in God anymore. Because she was at another church and, and somebody did her such an injustice. And she will not say what the church did. She named the church, but she won't say what they did. And they did such an injustice that she came to a point that she just, I, I don't know if I believe at all. She sat at the Alpha table for eight or nine weeks now and People have just been loving to her, and somebody suggested a daily devotional to her. All of a sudden, she's lit up like a Christmas tree. Just, you know, it's, it's wonderful. I don't know what those people at that other church did, but they shouldn't have done it. They shouldn't have done it. We need to be sensitive to the Spirit of the Lord, and we need to be doing what the Lord's asking us to do, and we need to be not doing what He's not asking us to do. And if we can figure that out, then we're looking pretty good. Am I making sense? And we don't need to be making rules about it. It's got to be a personal thing. It's got to be a thing with the Lord and His Spirit. And we'll get, we'll get way ahead in life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight in the name of your Son, Jesus. And we thank you for... <coughs> we thank you for what we have. We thank you for what He did on that cross. But we thank you that we do have a high priest in heaven and that that when we have sorrow in our heart or when we've screwed up real badly and we're sorry, uh, that we have someone that we can talk to that listens and that our prayers do get answered. And Lord, we would just recommit our lives to you tonight, one and all, and say, God, I want to live for you. I want to make my life count. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to do foolish things. I don't want to do things that tear my life down spiritually. I want to be an obedient person. I want to walk in the grace that you have to, to, for me to walk in. Lord, make my life have, have meaning that I could look back at the end of it all and say I, 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 it was worth it. I wasn't perfect. I wasn't completely without sin. But God was always there for me. And as much as I could be, I was always there for God. And I, it was worth it. Lord, help us to, to, to be able to die gracefully uh, with the peace of God in our hearts. We surrender ourselves to you tonight.
I'd like you to keep your eyes closed for just a little bit longer. And we're going to pray another prayer. And it's a prayer that just simply says, God, I'm a person who's been living far away from you. And I want to change that. I want to live close to you. And um, I'll pray out loud. And you pray silently. And God will hear us as we pray. You just jump on my words and pray my words along with me. Give assent to them. But I don't want to just do this for the sake of doing it. I want to know if somebody's praying with me or not. And so if you want to pray to invite the Lord to become centerpiece in your life, then I want to ask you just to tell me that we're going to pray together. I'm going to count to three. And if you intend to pray with me, I just want you to raise your hand. The people around you have their eyes closed, so they're not looking at you. But I am. And uh, if you want to pray with me, here it goes. One, two, three. I see one, two, three, four, five people lifting their hands. Let's pray together. Again, just give assent to these words. God, I know that I need you in my life. I believe in your existence. I believe that you've been communicating your presence to me, showing me that you're there and that you care about me. And I want to respond by saying that I care about you. And God, there are a lot of things that are really out of joint in my life, and I pray that you would come and that you'd do a realignment. You'd put things the way they ought to be. Lord, I'm not signing up here to be a perfect person. I'm not signing up to be a religious person or join a church. I'm inviting the God of the universe to come into my life and be a leader. And and I just am saying I want to follow. I understand that your son Jesus somehow canceled guilt when he died on that cross for people like me. And so I'm asking that you take away my guilt and you replace it with forgiveness. I understand that you have the power to heal broken lives and uh, this life of mine could use some help. And, and, and so I'm asking you to come in and, and, and make changes in my innermost being that work their way out in my behaviors. God, I got some problems in my life. I got financial issues. I got health issues. Please help me with those things. Work your miracles in my life. I surrender myself to you tonight. And lastly, Lord, I would pray that through my friends in this church, I would, I would learn about you deeply. I'd really come to know you in a very, very deep and, and a meaningful way. Bless me tonight as I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.